0: I'm so excited to bring Tom Shimmer onto the podcast this week. He is an independent educational author, speaker, and consultant from the Vancouver area. And over the course of his career, he's been a classroom teacher, an administrator, and district-level leader. This week, Tom shares his journey not only as a leader, but how he redefined accountability in grading, the myths of standards-based grading, and the importance of descriptive feedback for students. Also in this episode, we discuss standards-based mindset, grading true north and his best-selling book grading from the inside out bringing accuracy to students assessment through a standards-based mindset welcome back everyone to aspire the leadership development podcast where we will be discussing the visions inspirations and experiences from top educational leaders my name is joshua stamper and you can connect with me on twitter or on instagram at joshua double underscore stamper tom thank you so much for being on the podcast. Happy to be here, Josh. Looking forward to this conversation for sure. And Tom, before we push record, I was just saying that I feel like I know you because I've been through many sessions of yours and read your book and listened to your podcast. It's so great to have you here with me. I'm such a huge fan of all of your work. And today I really want to talk about standard space creating. But before we jump into that very, very important topic, I'd love to hear about your leadership journey.
1: Yeah, it's been an interesting journey. You know, certainly this being 30 years in education and the last 10 years working as a speaker and a consultant. But in my first 20 years in the school system, I spent uh, 11 years as a school-based administrator. And right away when I got into administration, I really focused on wanting to be an instructional leader. Uh, You know, it was one of those things where as I sort of envisioned what my leadership career would look like. I really wasn't interested in the management part because I just knew that the management stuff could be learned. I could figure out, you know, procedures and policies and what really mattered to me. And of course, we're going now back to the late '90s as I sort of began my administrative career, where instructional leadership. I don't know if it was as common back then as it is now, Uh, but certainly that was my focus. And and after 11 years at the school level, I, I worked two years at a central office position where you know that was a really exciting two years for me, which was, you know, being a part of a, a senior management team that was sort of, you know, setting a direction and and, and being focused on the direction our district was going and having a hand and working with principals. It just really, uh, I think, suited me. It suited my skill set. And I really enjoyed it. And then, of course, two years later, I resigned from that position. And now I do the work I do now full time. But I, I really enjoyed the leadership role because not from a, of course, not from an, an authoritative perspective or anything like that in the title, but it was doing the work. It was watching a school transform and and from a district level, watching a district begin, you know, to shift and, and move into a different sort of journey and have a different focus. It was really exciting to see you know, to to see the collective shifts happening and know that you played a role in that and know that people kind of look to you as as time went on, you know, people looking to you for your experience and, and what you bring to the table. It was just a really exciting time for me, for sure.
0: So when you went from being a teacher to administrator, what were some of the largest aha moments for your misconceptions that you had <laughs> to kind of go through?
1: I don't think there's any bigger jump than going from a teacher to administration, because it is the first time that you have your eyes open to the fact that, Not everybody thinks like you. Mm -hmm. Not everybody goes about the work like you do. You know, when you're a teacher, you don't know. You're not privy to to other classrooms other than what your colleagues tell you or if you happen to go observe them. But as an administrator, you start to realize quite the diverse approaches, which can be a positive. You see a lot of breadth in terms of teaching styles and, and impact but you also see the downsides, which can be, you wonder, you know, some of the, some of the things that people do or say, or the way they interact with parents, it sort of, it's, it's a bit shocking. I found to to realize that there were those differences happening across a school, a school within which I had worked for several years. So, you know, and then of course there's the relationship part. There's the parts where, you know, as a classroom teacher, you know, you're working with your colleagues and they confide in you and you confide in them. And And of course, as you move into administration, there is that line that, um, especially in a school where you've transitioned into that role. I know that I have several of my close friends who for the last 20 years have been friends of mine, but we started... As administrator-teacher relationship, there wasn't that teacher-to-teacher relationship, so there's so many differences. But that I think I think it's the the biggest jump in the system, moving from a classroom teacher to a, a school administrator.
0: Did you always feel like you wanted to get outside of the building and be a district administrator?
1: Yeah, you know, I I really did. I I could see my career path, and I knew the correct career path that I was on, and I knew that had I stayed in the role I was in, and and I, I you know I don't say this to to brag or to, to boast or anything like that, but I knew I was on a superintendency trajectory. It may not have been the district that I wanted to work in. It, I may have had to, you know, take whatever came my way, but I knew that was the trajectory I was on. I, I always thought to myself, I, I felt that leadership was my forte, actually, to be honest, because I'd always been a coach. And I I felt like as I got into leadership, I actually felt I was a a more effective administrator than I was a classroom teacher. I, I felt like understanding the nuances of leading an organization, and again, trying to engineer the collaborative, you know, collective efficacy of of everyone to me was a real forte. So I I really saw that as a career path for myself. I I did not know how I was going to get there. I did not know, you know, what twists and turns and what unexpected hiccups, and there was no guarantee that that was actually going to happen for me. So I I want to be clear about that, but definitely that was the, the vision long-term was I could see myself you know, being a part, at least a part of a district leadership team that was responsible for setting the direction instructionally and and setting the tone for a district. And, you know, I kind of always seen that as being what I was looking for. And Tom,
0: I usually ask this question at the end of the podcast, but I'm just interested now in our discussion is, you know, for those who are aspiring leaders that are thinking about, you know, getting into the field of administration, what are some things that you would advise them to do maybe tomorrow or next week?
1: I really do think the instructional leadership focus is, is a critical one, because when I work with principals and assistant principals and district staff, and they talk about leading change in grading and assessment, one of the very first things I say to them is, you have to know what you're talking about. You, you cannot lead a shift that monumental in assessment and grading practices and not be able to sit down with a teacher and have a credible conversation. You, you need not be the expert in the school. And and quite frankly, you shouldn't be the expert in the school eventually. Right. you People should surpass you in the, in their expertise, especially if we're talking about subject specialization or things like that. But to lead an initiative, to lead anything, you have to have a level of competence in that particular area. So I think that as teachers focus on, say, moving into administration, or even as assistant principals think about moving into principalships, if you are not yet sort of honing your skills as an instructional leader, it, it's something that I really think folks should focus on because I do think it it arms you with that level of credibility. Because I think for leaders, that is a lethal combination. It is your experience and your competence that that allows and opens the door, I should say, to teachers looking to you for guidance. Because I think as you gain, as you grow in experience and you have competence, there's teachers, especially young teachers new to the profession, they're going to look to you for guidance and suggestions and grounding or just affirmation as to the choices they've made. And so for me, I think that, you know, being being an instructional leader, which ultimately means be the most effective teacher you can. Be, be good, be great at the job you currently have, and that will set you up. So having one eye on leadership, but not having too much of focus on the future because you don't want to forget about today. Mm-hmm. So have that instructional leadership mindset, but develop it through the competence of doing your job today. That's kind of how I would focus on it.
0: Yeah, I love that answer, which is actually a perfect segue to your book, Grading from the Inside Out, which is fantastic. Anyone that is listening needs to read this book immediately. With that, you know, being on multiple campuses and multiple districts and trying to, you know, hone in on standards-based grading, you know, there is a big mindset shift that needs to occur on a campus. Yeah. So, um, I love your book because it sets it up with the standards-based mindset. So, what is that all about?
1: Well, it comes from that most of us work in imperfect systems. We, you know, it'd be ideal if our report cards were perfectly aligned, if our grading programs were perfectly aligned, all of that. Mm -hmm. It actually grew out of an experience I had early in my career. I was at a high school. We were leading this conversation. You know, this was 16 years ago. And our Department of Education here dictated at the time that we report percentage-based grades. And so we, we faced a crossroads. We, we faced a, a dilemma, which was the fact that the report card was dictated to us. Does that mean there's nothing we can do? Or does that mean we can change the engine that produces those grades? And that's where we sort of developed, you know, I didn't develop the expression standards-based mindset until much later, but the genesis of it was in this situation where we thought, you know, why don't we just act as if we are in a standards-based system, even if our constructs, our grading program, even if our, you know, student information system, even if all of that is still traditional, we can change the engine that produces the grades. And that's where we really focused on sound assessment practices and sound grading practices that produce the report card grades. And that's really where it started from. It's developing a mindset around grades that says, listen, grades are not a commodity. That grades are, they're not about coercing behavioral compliance, that grades should solely be a reflection of student learning and not something students chase through harvesting points, Mm -hmm. but that it is a reflection of quality. It's a reflection of sophistication and it's a reflection of learning.
0: You know, you talk about grading true north with the combination of accuracy and confidence. And so with that, I'm just thinking of your experience as far as trying to reconstruct a grading system, how did you use your grading to True North?
1: Well, the True North really developed kind of organically in a way. So Mm -hmm. 17 years ago, when I began this assessment journey, you know, I was a very traditional high school history teacher when I first started. And, you know, for the first number of years of my career was very traditional. But 17 years ago was when I made a a switch in earnest. Mm. And it began by exploring, you know, my timing was perfect. Late 90s, early 2000s, we have this renaissance in assessment practices. Disproportionately because of Paul Black and Dylan William and their article Inside the Black Box, which came out in 1998, and Lori Shepard and Grant Wiggins and Tom Guskey and others, we had this resurgence in assessment practices. So 2003, 2004 school years when I begin to explore assessment. and as I start to read the articles, listen to the experts, et cetera, every single one of them keeps telling me when you assess your students, you need to assess for accuracy because inaccurate formative assessment runs the risk of misinforming students about what comes next in their learning. And inaccurate grading practices potentially runs the risk of misinforming, students, families, and and other stakeholders about levels of achievement, so accuracy matters. So that was a front-end decision. And so that was the first decision I made, which was when I assess my students, regardless of purpose, I have to ensure that the information that I gather is accurate. Now, what happened to me in my classroom, now, if I were to go back and critique myself, I would say that I was probably overly clinical about the work, I was too focused on the technical aspect. But what unfolded in real time was as I technically changed my assessment practices, I saw my students' disposition around learning change. Hmm. I saw my students begin to lean into learning. Now, I'm not going to say that all of my potentially failing students became straight A students. I mean, I could tell you that, but and there's no way to disprove it, but I want to be honest about it. But what I saw were students who were leaning back into learning. So at the time, what I knew I was is I was on something. So very quickly, that true north, accuracy and confidence became that sort of metaphorical compass because 17 years ago, of course, I didn't know nearly as much about assessment and grading as I do now. But what I knew was as long as my grading practices passed the accuracy and the confidence tests, then I would keep using them. But if they didn't, then I would have to either reconsider them or stop doing them. So if you have, you know, grading practices that produce accurate grades and confident learners, you're on the right track. But if you have a grading practice that that is accurate but undermines optimism or the opposite, it builds confidence, but it distorts achievement, that has to be tweaked because there's a problem on one side or the other. Mm-hmm. And if you have a practice that distorts achievement and undercuts confidence, that has to stop. So that's, you know, when people say it takes a long time to change grading practices, what I was so grateful for was that this true north actually made the switch rather quick. Like it made it, you know, in a, in a sh- relatively short period of time, mm-hmm. I was able to audit a lot of what I had traditionally done. And that helped me make some good decisions early on.
0: I'm just thinking about myself as a student. I, I was not a very disciplined pupil, if you will. I, <laughs> I, I really disliked school, <laughs> but I, I do remember, you know, if I turned something in late, you know, I'd get marked off or, you know, if I, was to regain some points. I would have to spend hours on end on, you know, some additional work to only, you know, see a slight adjustment to my grade. Mm-hmm. What is your belief as far as the grading system, you know, in, a, in its traditional form versus, you know, what you're talking about as far as providing feedback and accuracy? Can can you yeah. bo- both have an A through F system and also have an accurate interpretation of student mastery?
1: Sure. Yeah, you absolutely can. I think, one of my you know, big messages in the work that I do is I think that too often schools and districts are disproportionately obsessed with the symbols we use to report mm-hmm. and not obsessed about the assessment practices that produce the symbols. One thing to remember is that A through F is five levels. And so is one through five or zero through four. The issue we face with traditional grading is the percentage system. Mm. The the idea that there are 101 distinct levels of performance is an absurd notion that to this day, I don't understand why in 2021, we still think that we can distinguish between all of those gradations of, and, and here's the deal. If you can calculate to decimal places, you now have a thousand distinct levels of performance. And if you're calculating grades to two decimal places, you are asserting that there are 10,000 distinct levels of performance, which is ridiculous. So the, the, the irony, and this, you know, for many of your listeners, this may actually sound counterintuitive, but you increase accuracy by having fewer, more distinguishable levels because there is less variation amongst teachers which means in the assessment world, that speaks to what's called reliability. Mm -hmm. So the consistency with which teachers who teach the same grade level subject determine excellence, you will bring that more into alignment the fewer choices they have. And so you can assess levels of quality and still keep your A through F because an A in the old system could mean 90 to 100 and in a standards based system an a could represent an exemplary level of understanding or a sophisticated level of understanding whereas a b might represent proficient or competent and and a c might be developing or or you know approaching and in a d in some systems would be a novice and of course in texas you know the that that 70 is that passing threshold yeah. so we would have to adjust that a little bit but you can have levels and still have letter grades i think too often schools spend too much time jumping to the symbols. And again, I've said this several times and not paying enough attention to the assessment practices that produce the symbols. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode.
0: So I want to know about your journey because you're very honest You know, when you talk to schools or in your book yeah. about, you know, how as a teacher you had punitive measures within your own grading system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What were some of the myths that you had to break through, you know, as an administrator trying to change over to a standards-based model? You know, was there a lot of adversity between your teachers and and what were some of your tactics to, to change their mindset?
1: Well, there are a lot. I mean, there were a lot of things we had to confront, especially at the secondary level. You know, the number one myth is the issue of accountability. Mm-hmm. It is a it is a total myth that if you implement standards-based grading, it's a nice story, makes us feel better if we're against it. But the idea that students aren't held accountable is a ridiculous assertion on, on, on a couple of levels. You know, When you say don't penalize late work, some people hear no deadlines and they don't recognize that you can still hold kids accountable to deadlines. And the interesting part about that entire conversation is that Teachers and schools disprove their own theory on a daily basis. The example I always use is the issue of respect. Mm -hmm. Every school I've ever worked in and worked with expects their students to be respectful. When the students are disrespectful and they don't follow social norms, they are held accountable to a particular standard or a code of conduct. And of course, the response is proportionate. But students are held accountable for disrespectful behavior on a daily basis. And I will be so bold to say that every school I've worked in and worked with has done a fairly effective job of that. The one thing they never did was touch their gradebook. So on the one hand, we can hold kids accountable for a behavioral misstep, disrespect, and yet when it comes to a different behavioral misstep, irresponsibility, we seem to be debilitated without our grade book. We seem to not be able to do anything in response. So it's a, it's a complete myth because we actually disprove that theory on a daily basis. The other thing that I think people forget, especially at the secondary level, when you get stuck in on these practices, is that. Some of these practices, these punitive practices that we call accountability, actually serve to let kids off the hook. So the example I always use is, let's imagine I have a project due and Josh, you're my teacher. The day the project is due, I haven't handed it in. And the truth is, I haven't even started. So you have a policy that says to hold Tom accountable. I use a zero in the grade book. That'll teach him a lesson. Now I go to the online grade book that night and I look at my grade and because of that zero that you've already with, you know, great haste, you've already put that zero in my grade book and my grade has dropped from an 88 down to an 85. I still have a B and I look at that and I think to myself, okay, now what? There's nothing more that you can do to my grade. If you give me a zero and I'm still passing and I'm satisfied with that new grade, you will never get that project from me. And I would ask anyone, in what universe have I been held accountable? You've just systematically let me opt out of something you said was mandatory. So tell me again how standards-based grading holds kids less accountable. We have systematically let kids, if you have students in a school who can absorb zeros and still have a 4.0 you're not holding them accountable, so we have to shift the mindset. That's the big one. But there's so many others. You know, assertions about the real world, which is just yes. a, such a tired <laughs> argument. The idea that it's more work, and and fair enough to teachers. This is one that I deal with a lot when people say, you know, Tom, standards-based grading is more work, and they usually point to reassessment. Mm-hmm. And I say it should be different work. You don't. Most teachers don't have time for the add-on. So think about it in this sense as a zero sum game. So if I'm going to be doing more work around reassessment, then maybe think about collecting less homework so that you can balance out the minutes because I am empathetic to how teachers are under pressure in the time constraints. So there there are a ton of issues to deal with, but those are just a few.
0: So if someone is listening, Tom, and they're like, I'm totally in on standards-based grading. I've done a little bit of research. I've, I've heard Tom, yeah. they've read the book. What are some first steps that are so important for them to kind of kick off a campus level standards-based grading model?
1: I think there are three lines that I often assert and say, listen, if you can get some agreement with these three big ideas, then I think that's a real win. Yeah, The first one is related to what we just talked about. And I would say, if you can create a, an atmosphere in your school where it's just not possible for a student to behave their way directly up or down an achievement scale, then you've already taken one step forward. So can we all agree as a faculty, there's a lot more work to be done, but can we just agree that a student's grade will only be determined based on the quality of evidence that they produce? So there's no extra credit there's no penalties. And that's the other thing, you know, just as a tangent mm-hmm. X I I'm equally concerned about extra credit as I am the accountability piece. Right. So that's the first one. And, and by directly, I mean at that direct correlation, like you, you handed something late, I take off 10% or something yep. like that. That's if you can get an agreement, a, a kind of agreement across the faculty that that will only use evidence. Now there are other issues that we have to talk about. Like when do we use the more recent evidence and all of that, but, but that's a win. If you can get everybody to agree that we're not using the gradebook to course behavioral compliance. Two, I mentioned this earlier a little bit. If we can make sure that a student's grade is not dependent upon who their teacher is. So that means every teacher who teaches the same grade level subject has to have a similar or like-minded view of what excellence looks like so that there there isn't the opportunity for students to win or lose the teacher lottery you know, my GPA shouldn't be, shouldn't be dependent upon who I had for math, yep. right? It, it really needs to be consistent. And then the third one, which really speaks to the, the normative uh, process that, that often creeps into our practices, the third one would be, can we make sure that every time a student is assessed or graded, that we establish clear criteria and that a student's grade is never dependent upon their relative standing in comparison to other students in the room? That you don't compare students to student to try to produce a bell curve, but that you actually establish clear criteria and you do what we're supposed to be doing with standards, Mm -hmm. teaching to standards, which is criterion referencing, which means it's the student against the criteria, regardless of how strong or weak or in the middle any other student's performance was in the room. So those are three big ideas if you can agree that no one can behave their way up or down the achievement scale, if we can get on the same page in terms of excellence, and third, if we can make sure that we're not comparing students to students, that is a major move forward. There are a lot of other things that need to be worked on, but that's a real win if you can get some agreement around those three big ideas.
0: Yeah, those are so important. I especially like the calibration piece, you know, between teacher and teacher because the inconsistency there is definitely happening on on every campus. So um, just again, if you're looking for a amazing book, you need to check out grading from the inside out, but that's not where we, we end here, Tom, because if they want to learn yeah. more about all the things that you're doing, you have a fantastic new project, which is your podcast. So for those you know, who haven't had a chance to listen, what is that podcast all about?
1: <laughs> well, it's pretty easy to find because, uh, it lacks a creative title The that- title of the podcast is called the Tom Shimmer podcast and and I did that partially so I didn't have to deal with copying other names and partially because I was hoping down the road to you know expand the reach of the podcast and think about different things but ultimately the podcast really is structured around you know 3 three segments for the podcast. The first is kind of an an opening commentary, and and I just express my opinion about current events or things that are going on. But the bulk of the podcast really is the interview where I I have on, just just like this situation, I have on some great guests, and and we dig into a lot of the different topics around education. And I've been very fortunate to have some, some wonderful guests on so far. But the third segment is the one that I think is most relevant to our conversation. And it's the third segment's called Assessment Corner. Every week, I will either take questions from listeners who email me, or I'll just pick a topic. Sometimes it's just a topic that came up several times during the week during some of my Zoom trainings. And I think, you know, this is a good thing to explore with the podcast. There'll always be at least 10 to 15 minutes about assessment. If the entire podcast isn't about assessment, there'll always be a 10 to 15 minute segment on on, uh, assessment. That kind of helps grow people's assessment literacy, kind of give them my perspective, share some of the research, some of the big ideas, some things that, you know, you may not always agree with my assertions where it's not about research. But I think the one thing I try to do is just cause thinking. I want people to reflect on their assessment practices. I want to push their thinking. And even if you disagree with me, that's good. Because at least you're thinking and reflecting on how you respond to the information that I'm sharing. So, uh, Tom Schimmer podcast. It's on most platforms: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and and so many, and and YouTube as well as a YouTube channel for that. Thanks, Josh.
0: Of course, yeah, I am subscribed and I love it. The one that you did with Peter Dewitt was fantastic, uh, not too long ago. So, for anyone that's looking for an amazing podcast. Definitely check out the Tom Shimmer show. The other piece too is I've gotten to see you speak now one live and now one virtual, but you were so engaging. You know, for those who are looking to have someone speak maybe at their campus or at their district, how can they get in contact with you?
1: Well, the easiest way to get in contact with me is is, uh, email. So that's tshimmer at live.ca. Also through social media. I probably have too many social media (laughs) accounts and platforms, but I'm usually most active professionally on Twitter and Instagram. So Twitter it's at Tom Shimmer or at Tom Shimmer pod. Mm -hmm. I have two accounts there. And also um, at Tom Schimmer podcast on Instagram and any messages or things like that are, are happy. Um, absolutely happy to to take those messages. And certainly, uh, you know, connecting through Solution Tree as well. I do all of my work through Solution Tree. But so if you contact them as well, they can get in touch with me. But you're, you're more than welcome to contact me directly and we can work out sort of what you're looking for and we can talk that through. So would be happy to hear from any listeners who are interested in, 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 in just having a conversation. and then, And maybe that leads to a workshop or a presentation and maybe it doesn't. Because you know the, the main thing for me is is just being supportive and helping people you know go through the work and, and bouncing ideas and, and trying to trying to answer their questions and so uh, please feel free to reach out and let me know if there's anything I can do to support you.
0: Man, Tom, you definitely do that. Um, I remember the first time I saw you speak after the end of the day, I ran back to my campus and I told my entire staff. I said, "We're changing the grading system." <laughs> I was like, "Everyone <laughs> has to read this book." They had no idea what they got into, but right. yeah, again, grading from the inside out is the book, and I'll have the uh, link in the show notes and then also check out tom's podcast tom is that an every week podcast
1: right now it's an every week podcast i awesome. usually put out an episode monday i'm anticipating that uh if and when i get back to traveling and and uh sort of that life as a road warrior it may go to every other week but right now i'm trying to put out an episode per week and we're on episode 26 so it's wow. just a brand new podcast just started last september and uh yeah, I'm really excited about it and I uh, appreciate the opportunity to mention it here, Josh. So I do appreciate that. Thank Definitely. you.
0: Well, Tom, you are a wealth of information. Even tonight, I feel like I learned something from you. <laughs> I just appreciate you so much, not only what you're doing in education, but how you've impacted my own journey. So thank you so much for being on the Aspire podcast.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Josh. It's very kind of you to say, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here.